You're listening to the CAD Manager Confessions Podcast, episode 25. In this episode, I'll be sharing an interview I did with Darren Young as part of series one of my BIM Management Masterclass, where I interview some of the best BIM managers across different industries. Thanks, Darren, for being a part of the podcast. And now play the intro. This podcast is for CAD managers in their pursuit for the perfect set of plans. Each week, we'll be doing deep dives into what CAD managers deal with every day as they manage and mentor their CAD team, build and enforce standards, develop best practices, and provide leadership and vision in the implementation of new technologies. With an extensive career as a CAD manager, I'm here to confess all my lessons learned, strategies, and all my project delivery secrets. If this sounds like the right place for you, then let's get started. I'm your host, Eric DeLeon, and welcome to the CAD Manager Confessions Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the CAD Manager Confessions Podcast. I am your host, Eric DeLeon. In this episode, I'm continuing my BIM Management Masterclass series by interviewing another BIM manager. Today, I would like to welcome Darren Young to the podcast. Darren is from the Kent, Washington area. Darren is a director of construction technology, SIMBIM certified construction technology committee member, advisory board member, former technical editor for John Wiley and Sons, former contract writer for Inside AutoCAD. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. All right. Thank you, Eric. Hey, so it's kind of, it's kind of nice to have another uh, Pacific Northwester. Uh, on the podcast, so welcome, man. Yeah, I don't know that I can claim. I've only been up here about four years. So Midwestern originally, uh, it was too hot in Minnesota, so I moved to the Southern California desert, and it was too wet there, so I moved up to Seattle. And I, you know, somehow I think I keep getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah, but however, right? I mean, um, like like in the pre-interview, I was I actually lived out of a hotel in um, Bellevue, Washington, which is east of Seattle. If you're not familiar with the area. And um, as much as people think it rains a lot, that's one of their, I guess they say, one of their best kept secrets is that, yeah, it rains a lot, but it doesn't really rain a lot. Is, do you... uh, it's more of a mist. The, you know, the Midwest, I, I think the heaviest rain I was in was 10 inches in an hour. And here, <laughs> it'd probably have to rain you know, a month to get 10 inches typically. So it's more of a just, just enough to make things damp. Yeah, but and, and enough to keep a lot of the outsiders away uh, yeah. for the most part. So. All right on. Well, I guess let's get right into it. Um, where you work at, how long have you been there, and what do you do? Uh, I work for a company called University of Mechanical Contractors up in Mukilteo, Washington, just north of Seattle. Uh, I've been there a whole just under two months. Um, I'm the director of construction technology there. So, you know, essentially, I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're not big enough where I'm full-time strategy, you know, so I get a mix of actually digging into some software and some tools at the tactical level. Uh, but also focusing on kind of the overall strategy and, and architecture and, you know, what are we putting in our tech stack? How are we using it? Uh, making sure we're using it effectively. Nice. Now, so do you, uh, in your position, do you manage people or just manage the technology or manage maybe a little bit of both or all? Uh, yeah, both. I've got a couple guys that work, uh, work with me uh, that probably know more than I do of the, <laughs> the inner workings of, you know, my new company. So they're, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're 
they're good at what they do and they kind of have their little specialty areas that they, they work in. And I just kind of help, you know, uh, yeah, my job is to make, help make them successful, clear roadblocks, help dig into things, pull in. I have a lot of people in my network. So if they get stuck on anything, I can reach out to my network, help get them answers. Um, and just kind of, you know, sometimes you're so busy in the trenches working, it helps to step back and kind of look at the overall picture. You know, that's kind of my goal um, and, and role at UMC. Yeah, I think I try to do the same thing as well, where I, I, I find it a, um, I want to say, an honor to be, to be um, somebody's manager, mentor, supervisor, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, take that very seriously, like you said, making sure that they have the tools so they can be successful which results and makes, you know, us as a manager successful and then ultimately the firm, right? And so, and and having a deep network, it's awesome because, you know, like I know you and I know others, these amazing, um, you know, technology professionals that were able to then, you know, just where email our message away of, hey, I remember you did that. Um, so what do you think about this? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I like to tell people I'm not very smart. I just know smart people. <laughs> who for some reason feel obligated to uh, share their knowledge with me. Um, you know, and I, I get, I get questions from people all over the country, just from my past speaking and just networking at industry events. And people sometimes wonder, you know, why are you helping somebody else? It's like sooner or later, I'm going to run into that same problem and yeah. I'll have the answer. Part of it's a little selfish. I just, you know, in fact, I just got an email. It's actually from one of our, somebody I know pretty, pretty well at one of our competitors. And it's like, you know, that's the type of question that's going to make me put on my "you can't beat me" technology hat. I need to figure this out, um, and so we, you know, I just collaborate. And you know, there, there's times where I need to call in a favor. Hey, you know what? I I can't figure this out, but I know somebody who probably has the answer. And like I said, it's that you know, at the end of the day, if 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 our business success depends on software, we're probably doing something else wrong. So you can collaborate a lot with your peers, even competitors, and and learn a lot you know, without sharing company secrets. Yeah, this is kind of this, this podcast is kind of um, in that vein, I guess, where, you know, I get, I get the front row seat to some amazing professionals like you. Um, and it's kind of a little self-serving because I get to learn <laughs> from you guys directly and expand my knowledge. I mean, just doing these master classes, I mean, of course, the audience and everybody else, but for myself, I mean, um, you know, like I, like I told everybody is that, you know, we all walk in a similar path whether or not you're a BIM manager, CAD manager, technology manager, we have similarities, but yet the nuances of our own ambitions and the nuances of the different firms that we work at, because the cultures are different, expectations are different. And it makes it amazing where just these stories are just, um, and advice and lessons learned are just, I think to me are invaluable because just because of that, it makes it so unique and, and special. Yeah, I, I think the value of teaching is significantly underrated. I, I, I don't recall where I've heard it, but I've heard somebody say before, you can't, you don't know anything unless you can actually teach somebody else. Yeah. And so just, you know, that act of trying to teach and pass on knowledge, you know, you probably learn more from that, you know, than what you were initially trying to, to teach. I, you always learn something from teaching others. Agreed. And again, I think it helps you also solidify some of, some of your truths and your workflows um, and those kind of stuff. And kind of like this, again, this podcast, another part of it too, was this could just help one person who's either beside me, one step, two steps, five steps behind. It's going to be all worth it um, to be able to share your guys' stories and mine along the way um, to be able to help them out. So, um, so 
what is your ask us everybody uh what is your cad slash bim slash technology origin story oh you know i i could probably go way 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 back you know now when i think about it i think of you know as a kid sketching up you know you know you know blueprints of a fort i was going to build when we moved out in the country but uh, I think mine, uh, mine more started out, I, I went to electrical trade school, uh, I got tired of holding a full time job while going to school and paying out of state tuition, which was essentially double. And so I just got a factory job young, dumb, didn't think anything of it. And then they got into CNC machining. And it's like, hey, that looks pretty cool. And so I took a couple classes, which really taught me nothing other than it put me ahead of everyone else. And I just kind of went from there. Um, you know, I ended up getting hooked up with the local CAD user group. Uh, and those guys opened my, my eyes to a lot better world, got into, you know, autoless programming, uh, back in those days. And it just kind of, kind of sprung from there. I'm thinking, you know, this, uh, this will get me out of here someday. And, and instead of doing production factory work, um, and, uh, lo and behold it, you know, it did, um, like I said, it's, it's been a good ride, but it's interesting how, you know, throughout that process I've switched and you start seeing intersections of all these things, you know, the programming side of me. You know, I, I see parallels to when I went to electrical trade school and, uh, you know, electrical, uh, you know, the logic of electricity. You know, I always happen to work for manufacturers of architectural product. I'm now in construction, but, you know, what, is, what are we doing now? We're prefabricating and we're doing modularization and things like that, the industrialized construction. So it's, uh, it's been interesting, that's for sure. Yeah. So what I, what I find fascinating, again, I think my origin story is very similar. Or, you know, it started at a young age. I was like 10. Um, you know, saw my uncle doing an architectural um, drafting class in high school, and I, I just thought that was fascinating that you could draw something on a set of plans, and then somebody goes builds it. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, but for but for you, you know, you you talked about kind of you know kind of that blue collar factory work, right, type of stuff. You know, what kind of mentality from that kind of work have you been able to bring over into kind of what you do today? Because I know some of that stuff that's some that's some tough work. Right. And so, um, but same time though, I think there's something there that for us, you know, white collar, more of the office, office people, um, you know, how did, how does some of that relate to kind of who you are today? Uh, you know, I, I, I attribute a lot of my success in technology, I think just to other things that aren't successful. So whether I'm really good, I, I think I'm very good at troubleshooting. In fact, I seem to find problems. They just jump out at me. Uh, yeah, I could think back and, you know, running CNC machine tools, sometimes things were exactly the opposite of what you thought. You know, in, in this one case, we're getting into CNC machining. It was a, a woodworking shop and we had these dovetail joints and the tooling kept breaking. And so what do you do? You slow the machine down and you spin the tool faster and they keep on breaking. Me being the contra contrarian that I am. I worked night shift and I just, you know what, I'm just going to do the opposite. And I had to break a tool all night. Didn't know why it worked. The day shift comes in and saw what I was doing and what the heck are you doing? You know, and it's like, hey, I didn't break any tooling. And, you know, it, it, you know, it wasn't until one of the tooling suppliers came and said, hey, you know what, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a force issue. It's a heating issue. You know, when you think about it, take a pack, you know, a handful of sawdust. How far can you throw it? Now take a handful of shavings. How far can you throw it? You know, the slower you go, you know, or the faster you're moving that tool, but the slower you spin it, you know, you're making big shavings and you're dissipating heat. That makes sense. And that's one of those things I think that was kind of, it seems kind of benign, but when you think back of it, 
things are sometimes the exact opposite of what you think and what they appear. So just from a software standpoint, I, you know, I'm my biggest, I think my biggest critic, if, I, if I've got a theory, I'm going to try exactly the opposite and just validate that theory. And quite often I'm, you know, so those, those types of lessons, I think, just throughout your, my career in doing those types of things have got me just to explore options. Um, sometimes we just, well, this is what I was trained. I just do this. Well, what if I don't do that? What if I do five different things? I explore options. And, you know, you tend to do that a lot when you're doing physical, you know, labor and work, trying to find quicker ways, better ways. Things don't go together the way they're supposed to. You got to find solutions. Yeah, well said. I think that's one of the, I think the hallmarks, right? I think of us evolving as professionals is willing to do the opposite sometimes as tough as it can be because we get so stuck in that just in the, this is what somebody told me. So I'm taking that that's as the gospel, right? But like for you, like maybe you didn't know what you didn't know at that, at that point, <laughs> like maybe I do the opposite and, and just to see, right? I mean, just to tinker, but I think sometimes we get scared to even tinker a little bit of, you know, maybe if I do the software, this, I try that or the machine to do this, do that. And just to see, I mean, I know it's probably a little bit different when you're dealing with, you know, tens of thousands, hundred thousand dollar machinery, <laughs> right? But, yeah. you know, at some point, somebody, at some point, somebody made the jump and went the opposite way to do something revolutionary. Or, you know, maybe in this case, you know, you made yourself and your group more efficient in what you were doing and um, saving costs and not breaking tools every two minutes. Yeah, you know, it, it's really kind of the same as being a parent, too. How, how do your kids grow the greatest? You let them explore their boundaries. That can be frustrating <laughs> when you to sit there as the yeah. parent or the boss and watch your employee pushing boundaries, doing things maybe they shouldn't and having to, yeah. but that, that's how you really understand the, the limits of what, what you can and can't do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that helps inform not just how to do something, but how things work. Uh, yeah. I think that's kind of uh, an under, underappreciated skill set. You know, just getting something, sometimes we're so busy, we're just happy it got done and that yeah. it works, but we don't understand how. And yeah. I always try to figure out how. Yeah, nice. That's a, that's a good trait to have. Um, how long have you been in CAD, BIM, technology management? Uh, I'm going to say 29 years. Now, most people that, you know, maybe they're, a you know, they start in an architecture firm and they draft uh, and, you know, they kind of start getting into the tech and they become a, more in the management side later. I started out right away because there was no CAD people. I, I had the first AutoCAD station. We had the first computer in the company. We had the first CNC machine. And so, I had to figure that stuff out. I was my own CAD manager, uh, essentially. But you know, I remember back in the days, I, I got yelled at for drawing up a title block with attributes in AutoCAD. If people don't know how to draw their own title block, they shouldn't be in AutoCAD. Um, and it's like, well, why would you draw that? Because they would literally draw a title block from scratch each and every drawing. Wow. Nobody knew any better. You know? And it's yeah. like, well, what if we do it once and then we never have to do it again? And my manager just looked at me like, yeah, I never thought of that, but we didn't, we didn't know any better. So, yeah. and, and that's where those user groups back in the day were, were really helpful, um, you know, to, to kind of just level set something that was completely new, you know, to me. Yeah, I have a similar story where I was at the DOT. I just started, I was a structural engineering technician in the bridge section um, here at ODOT. And they used MicroStation. I came from a, I used MicroStation in college for a few terms, but I really didn't use it in a professional environment. 
you know, coming off of five years of using AutoCAD, Inventor, Mechanical Desktop. And, you know, for, so, but for MicroStation, the DOT, they actually had, if anybody's listening, they use MicroStation, they actually came up with like a, a, it's called a sidebar menu. And what they did was they, you know, it's kind of like a little on-screen digitizer. You have but buttons, it does macros, list routines, you know, scripting and stuff like that. But they had something very similar where um, they did dimensioning where you draw your extension lines at both ends and then you touch one side and you touch the other extension line and it draws the line with a with arrowheads and a dimension of dummy dimension or dim, a dummy text placeholder gets put on top of it and then you enter in wow this is i i just i was like wow this is crazy so i said do you know that microstation comes with a dimensioning tool right with the dimension style and so i recreated that you know, dimension style, mimicking their look and feel. And even then they didn't trust it. I said, look, I mean, let me show you an example, right? I said, okay, you so let's both draw a line, 100 feet. Uh, I said, okay, ready? And then we both dimensioned it, right? I went click, click, click to place it, done. And he was still drawing lines and editing text. And I guess for them, it was just, they didn't know what they didn't know. Yeah. And they just didn't trust the program that, even though the program has a measure tool <laughs> that tells you, you know, it was crazy, but uh, it's just interesting though. I mean, for, for them, again, I, I want to say maybe, and I don't know for sure, but they were just put in this box um, and then said somebody at that time said, this is what we're going to be using, but yet nobody challenged it, um, you know, until I came along. And then I, I like to say I created the first dimension style for the DOT to be used in MicroStation. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy how just we get stuck in blinders sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you don't know what you don't know. That, that's why I think to be successful in this kind of role, you you have to have a curiosity about something, passionate about something. You know, you could be passionate about waste and inefficiency, or you could be curious how things work, or you know, looking for different ways. Um, but you got to have some type of some type of curiosity, or I guess that's one of the things when I've interviewed people. What are you passionate about? I don't really care what it is. I just want to know you care about something. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> you know, why put some thought into why you do things the way you do. Um, you know, I mean, I could talk about forever about naming standards and file naming formats and things like that. And, you know, now you could argue my methodology for naming is wrong or right, or it should be different. But the fact is, I, I guess I've always admired this. I, there was a guy that used to be online uh, in one of the Autodesk forums years ago. He was like a notorious programmer for always bumping heads with Autodesk people, but you know what? He always had a reason for everything he said. You could argue about what his reasoning was, but he always had a reason. I always admired that, you know, that he actually put thought into everything he did and said. Yeah. One of my high school mentors gave me this quote. I kind of carry with me today is like, you know, know what you believe and why you believe it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so for that, I, I'm assuming, you know, indifferent, it doesn't matter. I mean, at least he was able to <laughs> educately, you know, be able to back up right the, everything yeah. that he came up with which that and them in themselves can be tough sometimes because some, again we just learned whatever the last person did and we really don't know why we're doing what we're doing um what's one of the biggest misconceptions about cad bim um do you think that we have and as you know industry subject matter experts you know how do we educate the masses in regards to that misconception oh the educating masses i think is going to be tough uh, for the longest time, you know, people thought BIM was software. Uh, I went to an AGC BIM forum and 
you know, there's a Q&A after presentation. Uh, they were energy engineers, and they so they ha they had a program that analyzed the you know the thermal properties of glazing, and another one just for the extrusions for the window frame. And you know, there's this person got up and you know, so how come you're not doing BIM? Because she didn't see Revit in the presentation. Um, I, I think we're past that. You know, now you there's a lot of debate on whether BIM is you know is a, it's a process or mindset or methodology. You know, a lot of that's kind of semantic, but um, I think one of the problems with BIM is people think it just saves money and it doesn't necessarily, it's how you implement it. Uh, I made the comment once uh, and as an Autodesk's office talk, doing some, uh, uh, it was like a re customer research panel with uh, one of their Navis people. And I said, Navis is not value added. And he looked at me like I was stupid. And I said, no, look at this way. You know, it, you know, nobody paid me to run my duct into a steel beam in the field. And if I do that, I'm moving it on my dime. You know, you move that into the virtual environment, much more cost effective. It doesn't, not nearly as costly, but from a lean perspective, and I think this is my manufacturing background coming in, the customer never paid me to do that. And if I move that, if I coordinate because I ran into a clash, that's virtual rework, that's waste. You know, what we want is a system that prevents us from doing that in the first place. And so I've seen people use some of the BIM tools kind of as a crutch. We're just gonna run stuff, we'll run a clash, find out where the problems are and fix them later. No, you, you gotta, you, you, it's, like safe, it's like a safety net or safety measures or you know, any type of PPE. Ideally, you shouldn't need the hard hat. Nothing will get dropped on your head. You won't fall off the building. You don't, you don't wanna use that stuff. It's there just in case. You know, a lot of these BIM tools are, are just kind of used kind of as a crutch as opposed to strategically using them. I think that's one of the, the big issues with BIM and just, you know, does it save money? No, eh, it doesn't save as much as you think. It shifts it. It reduces risk, so it can save money in that aspect, but the, the money is shifting from the field into the shop or into the office. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, yeah, I really like that because I think we, I'm, I'm big on trying to minimize crutches as much as possible because I think we tend to, like you said, we'll rely on that too much versus doing our due diligence during the designing or the layout, right? And like you said, it's virtual rework because you're like, well, you should have known that duck went through that column or it, go, it went through that beam or it went through the stairs, you know, it's too low or whatever, right? I mean, that's stuff that we should be doing, at least in my mind, right? During the design, the engineering of putting stuff together. But I think sometimes we rely too much on technology um, to help us, like you said, to help us, and I guess it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it'd be it's yeah. good, but I think, but again, if it's if you're doing too much of virtual rework, then how how is your process or due diligence before you get to that point? Because really, it should be a fatal flaw checklist, right? Yeah. I mean, but not a tool that we're using constantly. But yet, it's a great tool to have because obviously, we don't have all those processes down enough to be able to let us do that more effectively as well. Well, it, it's mis the tools are misunderstood, I think, too, by people who aren't using them. You know, quite often management, um, I saw this in manufacturing too, it's not unique to construction, but you know, expensive computers, expensive software, long learning curve, expensive people, and at the end of the day, it doesn't appear to actually physically change a product, which is where value gets added. Um, and it's like, so why do we have to, doesn't the computer just do that? And I, you know, 
uh, a good friend of mine, he had this, yeah, he, he said this once in middle, it was uh, in middle of a meeting. It's like, just because you get somebody Excel doesn't make them an accountant. And it's the same type of thing. Those, these tools aren't there to eliminate thinking. It's, eliminate, it's supposed to eliminate the thinking that you shouldn't have to think about. I, you know, I don't want my, I don't want to have to think about layers and line types. I want to think about running duct or pipe. Where does it go? Where doesn't it go? How are these systems going to connect and work together? You know, in, install it, you know, can I, can I install them efficiently? Can I manufacture them? And I don't want to have to worry about layers and line types and naming. That's the part of the technology should uh, just be automatic. Yeah. Kind of going, kind of going back to what you mentioned about, how'd, how'd you say it? Um, I guess stuff or the how sometimes the technology isn't necessarily cost saving, right? Um, be, but at the same time, I think be, I think where we get that from, <laughs> and I apologize, um, software resellers and vendors, is that I think that's the <laughs> narrative coming from the sales pitch. Yeah. Right? Versus, you know, for us, I mean, again, they're doing their job. They're trying to get the tools in our hands and the tools are valuable. But I think how, like you said, how they're communicated and how maybe they're perceived, um, that's, I think that's where it comes from folks like us, right, are in the trenches actually using it. And because it's very easy to oversell something, right, and then it under delivers, um, you know, because, again, they're trying to sell, um, they're trying to sell stuff. And I, I don't want to take away from that because the tools and the advances that they're doing, and all these new features are helping us. It's just, I think we may, in some cases, some folks may be relying too much on that being the, the end-all, be-all solution versus the, the upfront work that may need to happen. Yeah, I, I worked for a reseller briefly, um, and you would see how that sales process sometimes, you know, they're, the sales guys are measured on, you know, sales. But, you know, what would happen is, you know, they would sell, you know, they would sell an installation the customer would expect an implementation, and those are two different things. You know, oh, it's just a single license. Well, you find out it's a network license. And you got to install it on twelve, you know, old underpowered systems. <laughs> that's yeah. that's that's a, a big different thing. And so we, you know, we people have a tendency, especially I see this especially true in construction. You know, what you talk to a construction guy, what's your problem? All right, get out of my way. Let me take care of it. They can pivot on a dime. I, I kind of I liken it to the uh, the Native Americans chasing the buffalo on the Great Plains. The herd comes through, they're packed up and following that herd on the hunt. Very efficient, very agile. Pivot on a dime. Um, you know, so we tend to just solutionize. I think quite often in this industry, we, we just jump into things. And what I've been trying to tell people is that the the tech the technology is advancing to the point where we can't just jump into it and figure it out anymore. It's not a tool. And so I, I've started trying to use the language of the people I'm talking to. And I said, so I'm, I'm in the mechanical, electrical, plumbing, you know, industry. I said, you know, that last job we got, did we win that by sell, sending somebody a box of valves, fittings, and a couple sticks of pipe? No, we didn't. We're not selling pipe and valves and fittings. We're selling a system. We're, you know, thermal comfort. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's a system. Same thing. People buy these tools, they expect efficiency, but you know, I, I could throw a big fancy motor in my car, but if the spark plugs are bad or the air, you know, the air filter is clogged, it's not going to run. The bulk of the money is spent and I still have zero value from that. You got to look at it from a system standpoint. Sometimes that means you don't optimize the pieces. You have to optimize for the system. 
what are some challenges that you're running into as a manager and what's, and you know, and what are you kind of doing to help um, overcome those challenges? Oh, you know, cry and curl up into a ball is what I'm doing to overcome them. <laughs> <laughs> they don't um, exist. They don't exist. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of things, you know, that, you know, we talked about just kind of, we throw tech at things and expect it to solve it without looking at the people in the process sometimes, or, you know, thinking of it from a, a systems thinking standpoint. One of my personal challenges, we talked about this earlier about managing people. It, it, it's tough. The reason I'm good at what I do is I had to figure it out. You know, there was no internet outside of, you know, government and academia circles back in the day. I couldn't Google things. I had to figure it out or, you know, I, I'm old enough that I remember dialing into Autodesk's BBS, you know, system, um, you know, and we would upload this mail packet and their system would relay that mail packet overnight. And you know, a week later, you'd get an answer from somebody, you know, that was That's the crazy. best you could do. Um, so when it comes to, and I like to share my knowledge, but I've always struggled with how much do you let somebody struggle versus help them out? You know, I, I could give you the answer, but you're not really going to learn it as well if you don't go through that kind of that battle yourself and fight it. So trying to find that line, you know, sometimes that's, that's uh, I think that's very individual to the person. I, I, I often tell people, you know, Hey, don't get frustrated. If it's to the point of frustration, let me know if you just want an answer, I'll give you an answer. But I, I, I think back to one of my coworkers at a, at a former company, he was in our Baltimore office. I, I used to love it when he would call because the first words out of his mouth, don't tell me how to do this. And then he would say, Hey, is this possible? what, where would you start to look? And I, I, I really like that because it helped me understand how I could help him do that himself. And I think some of that, that thought process comes from a, so book was recommended to me. It's pretty old, I think, but a guy by the name of Robert Pike was like a train the trainer type guy. And he said, you know, if you teach somebody something, you know, so Eric, I'm going to teach you something and you're going to go back. And ultimately my goal is to get you to change your behavior. Otherwise it's waste. So if I tell you something, you could, you know, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Well, of course he believes that he's teaching it. The best way to get you to change your behavior is to let you train yourself. And so the best thing you can do as a trainer sometimes is kind of walk somebody down that path. So they answer the question themselves that well, sure, I'm going to, I'm going to change my behavior because I figured this out. Um, and so I, you know, just trying to facilitate that whole process, I think is one of my challenges is just, you know, trying to read people where are they at at the frustration level. How much can I help them, but not let them get frustrated? And, you know, sometimes you just need to get stuff done and you don't have time. There's always that pressure. You know, I, I think that's my biggest challenge. I think just personally as a BIM manager, I, I, I've been starting to tell people, I said, you know, what, what's faster, uh, you know, a, a backhoe or a shovel? I can, I can guarantee I can dig dirt faster with a shovel than a backhoe. You know why? I don't know how to use a backhoe and I could get in there and figure it out, but uh, it's probably still not going to be as efficient. Then I'll get better at digging dirt, but it won't be very safe or very good quality. But, you know, the backhoe is always the right solution. So you've got to take that time to learn. Yeah, I, I, I have similar challenges. Um, you know, I, it's hard because I had, you know, managing people. I think I've been, again, fortunate um, of managing different groups of actually being their manager, resource manager, mentor, so forth. And um, one of the things kind of like you said was, you know, I had one person that really liked stuff to be silver plattered. Didn't, didn't really have initiative to learn or want to just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then others <laughs> that just 
would just go crazy and just do go too far ahead or you got to kind of manage how much rope you give them you know because again you want them to learn and i'm always big on that it's like you know try to try i mean google's our friend like you said we didn't have that i mean i luck i started college right at the birth of the internet and so you know um, and learning and navigating all of that at that time to get information but you know that's that's a challenge because and this is where i think what makes it a challenge but also i think we got to step back you know from reading books right it's kind of like um to be honest i manage my team kind of like parenting where i go i go in i go into it with the lens that you know like our all our kids they're all different right yeah the same they have values the same upbringing and the same loving environment and stuff like that but they all have their own different personality to get the best out of them you really have to observe and try to help you know help give them information or parent them or teach them mentor them in a way that's good for them you know we can't do the old school you know it's my way or the highway and i'm only going to do it one way because that's my way and i really don't care what you think right Darren, just do it, right? And so, and then you're just gonna fight back or not be happy. And so, but you know, that's the way I I found to be successful is really sitting back and paying attention to those nuances of the of my group, um, so that way I can hopefully try to do the best that I can. Well, I I think over the years uh, it, I've learned to embrace that, you know, I, and look back and you know I, I've known I've worked with people over the years that they're they're nine to five. I'm gonna I'm gonna come in. I'm not, I'm not the guy to raise a hand at a meeting and ask a question, tell me what to do. And, you know, I've, I've come to admire that in a lot of ways. It's like, wow, that's got to be a nice life. No problems. If I suggest something, I just bought an obligation. I've got to figure something out. I've got a, a more work to do. And, you know, what? There's, there's a place for that. Not, you know, not everyone wants to try to, you know, focus on strategy. And so it's just a matter of finding, okay, what, kind, what kinds of things uh, is, does this person like to do? What do they want to do? Some people just... You know, from a production standpoint, uh, I love doing repetitive, fast-track, monotonous work. That's I think that's kind of how I ended up getting into some of the automation and programming side of things. But I like that. I, I want to go if I have to open up 100 drawings and tweak something on 100 drawings. I don't mind doing that. I watch what our detailers do on a daily basis, fighting their way to snakes a system through a building. I don't know that I could do that in a production drafting world. Yeah. You know. Um, but I do similar things on the programming side that doesn't bother me. Um, so it's just a matter of finding what those, you know, those unique skill sets are that people have. And there's, there's typically a place for them, you know, um, to, to deploy that, you know, what you need, you need all of that. You, you know, it takes a, a lot of shades of green to make up a forest. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's just interesting. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, that's what human behavior is. Some of us have different ambitions. Right. And so, uh, but end of the day, I'm like, you know, you are getting paid for your job description. And if you want more, either more pay, more opportunity, more responsibility, um, then you're going to have to step out a little bit because we're not just going to give it to you just to give it to you. Right. And so it's up to, yeah, it's up to you. Um, Just showing up isn't enough. You know, um, everyone shows up for the sports team that they're on. You know, the the star players are the ones that are pushing themselves uh, beyond that. What was one of your biggest mistakes as a manager? How has that that helped you, shaped you in, (laughs) you know, your career moving forward? 
there's two of them that I think are kind of pivotal. Pivotal. One is uh, helping too much. So I'm in a CAD support role. You would think the best thing you do is help people, right? Uh, you know, we talked about the people that, you know, they just want to do stuff and not necessarily think, but sometimes if you help too much, you train people not to think they'll just call you, you bought an obligation and now you're bogged down and you can't really extend beyond that. You know, your comments like, well, I know your email said to, to do this first before calling you, but I thought it'd be easier just to call you. And so, you know, you could be too helpful, you know, some, and so I've tried to create environments where people self-help as much as they can. You know, you know, hey, uh, I need this installed. Well, you know, let me know when you're available. I'm happy to do that. Or you could just follow this process that I've documented and click this button in, you know, from this hyperlink and it'll do it. More times than not, people help themselves, you know, and now that frees me up to do other things. So I think that was one of them. Uh, the other one is just, I think, lack of feedback to the people who engage you with ideas that you don't implement. Um, that, that one was pretty interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I commented to somebody's manager about, you know, this, this, this guy's always got great ideas. And I, I just uh, really like that. And so his manager shared my thoughts with them and he came out with the knife in the back, the dagger in the back. Oh. And it's like, well, and so again, that, you know, his manager brings me in to tell me about this. He wasn't angry. He just, what's your thoughts? It's like, you know, what, you know, when I think about it, he was right. Most of the things he suggested, I didn't do. They were great ideas. But, you know, this is going to save five minutes once a month uh, or, you know, this will save an hour once a year. That thing you're talking about is going to take forever to program it. But, you know, at that particular company where this happened, if I shaved one second off of drawing production, because these were production drawings, uh, that would be a translate to $1,000 a year for every second I would save. So I would do other ideas. So I, I learned, I think, there to when people have ideas, you do have an obligation. If you want people to to give you ideas and improvements and suggestions, you have an obligation to explain to them why you're not going to do their idea. Yes, this is a great idea, but here, this is more value or yeah, it's on my list, but it's not at the top priority. Uh, otherwise, they're just going to stop giving you ideas. Yeah, I've, I've found that. I found that as well. It's hard. I guess I say hard. It's challenging to create that environment. I, you know, like you said, if you, it's, all, it's just hard because people, you never know what side they're going to go on, right? Of like, you know, you kind of say, they, I mean, like you say, if you say no too much, then they won't say something. So then how do you create a system or some kind of online, um, you know, suggestion suggestion forum where you say, hey, if you have an idea, put it here and let's bring it up at the next CAD meeting and let's talk about it. And, you know, trying to, you know, teach people that, you know, I kind of talked about it in earlier ones is, you know, the technical acumen and business acumen. And what does that mean? Like you said, yeah, that's a great idea, but to implement it, you know, to save a half a second every, you know, once a day, it, but yet it's going to take us 40 hours to program it. You know, it may not, there may not be a, an ROI on that, but, you know, but then you say, but I appreciate the idea. Keep them coming. <laughs> you know, that's hard, right? That's hard to create that. And I don't know where that balance and, documentation and follow-up where, where you where you can continue those ideas coming even though they might not be implemented every time yeah or if you can even find maybe aspects of what they suggested to put in yeah. other places or engage them and okay well you know here's why i'm not working on that and i'll tell them too you know look i got 
90% of the things I think we should do, I will never do. And if I tried to do them, you should probably fire me because you know, they don't all rise to the top in terms of value or ROI yeah. or um, you know, things like that. But th there's typically ways you can get to, it, it, it's a challenge sometimes, but you know, you can, there's ways to bring them into the conversation. You know, here's, here's what I am working on. Do you have any thoughts on this? What do you think here? Um, you know, or here's why, uh, just, you know, give them a little bit more insight. I mean, if they're engaged, they're thinking. And so if you give them more insight into what you're thinking, they're probably going to see that. Yeah. Good advice. Uh, now, the, and this kind of goes to, kind of goes to the questions you just answered, but what's one thing you wish you knew earlier on in your career that you know? Well, you know, I talked about kind of just some of this, the importance of storytelling and trying to use the language that others are familiar with. If I talk a bunch of technical, if you're not a technical person, I'm not going to get money from you. I, you know, I'm going to have to find a company where the, the leadership is very tech savvy and kind of gets it. Um, you, you work at a lot of companies, but I, I think one of the things I didn't really appreciate until later in my career, it, at the end of the day, it is about the business and cultural dynamics. Those things are critical. Um, especially in construction, uh, the, we don't, companies don't want to spend money on this. They can recoup it. Otherwise it comes out of overhead. It comes out of profitability. You know, the, the, the accounting makes things very difficult. Uh, you know, my last company, they put several million into shop improvements. Well, prefabrication, uh, in, in our space, you can, you can typically get 30, $35 an hour extra for every hour you shift from the field into the shop because they know it's more efficient, it's safer, it's better quality. You know, there's more value there. Plus it has to cover the, the, the shop burdens. So if I'm gonna invest all this money in my shop to make it more efficient, I just reduce the billable hours. That looks like a loss. Now everyone knows improving your efficiency is the right thing to do, but on the books, it doesn't look right. So how do you pay for that? Uh, you know, that tends to be a challenge. You know, how do you job charge things um, and present them in a way that, yes, this is a value to the job that the job should cover. Because if you just keep throwing it in an overhead bucket, that's coming right out of profitability and that doesn't look good. You know, you're doing the same thing, but it's, it, it's more of an accounting problem. And so I think that's one of the things I wish I, I understood a little bit earlier in my career. Um, it just, you know, I'd present these things and management would shoot down the expense. And it's like, well, why? You know, and I, I didn't quite understand, you know, that aspect of it. You know, how are we going to pay for this? Yeah, that's where, again, that's where that whole um, Donnie Gladfeld, um, Gladfelder and I uh, talked about that a little bit, because that's one of my biggest challenges. I think, again, why this podcast, I think, is is valuable to BIM and CAD managers, because we don't really go, where do we go to learn this kind of stuff, um, right? It's really all over different blogs, but I'm really trying to talk to the people like you and others. And, you know, just like you said, I love that you said that, because Again, it's that whole, we're really good on the technical, right? We know how to use the software. We know how to set up the standards. We know how to execute the program. But like you said, right, some of the challenges, how then do I, if I have a good idea, how can I effectively position my, my narrative in a business acumen way that management is going to buy in, right? So, and that's tough because we're not taught that. Yeah, here's a good example that happened within the last year at my last company. Um, you know, so Autodesk typically offers a, you know, like a 10% discount in licensing on renewal if you do a three-year deal. So, you know, 
put this nice plan together for a three-year deal and I can save the company $50,000. No. What in the hell? I always try to spend the company's money like I'd spend my own. You know, $50,000 is a lot of money to me. No. Why? That's not worth the risk. And okay, so let, so again, a new CFO, end up setting up a meeting with the CFO and have a conversation with them. And well, one, he was, he thought we had to pay that all up front. And the, the reseller was actually going to let us make, you know, annual installments. Um, and we talked about, and, you know, I, and so I showed them, okay, to actually have that cost us more, we would have to drop 50% of our staff in a month to actually save money by not doing a three-year deal. And so I showed, you know, if you look at our backlog, you know, it's just not going to happen that staffing will drop that much that we would actually be locked into a three-year deal and it would cost us more. No. Okay. Let's have some more conversations. Um, you know, and it's, we're, we're, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a lease Autodesk had to deal with the, you know, some multiple lenders, you know, we've got an obligation to work with a particular lender in our, in that business. Okay. Well, maybe they've got a deal. Well, what it really comes down to is, you know, cash flow is king in construction. And so, you know, when you have a conversation with a general contractor about this next big project, they want to know, are you going to be around? Are you double booked? Do you have too much? Are you too busy where you can't float the cash flow? And, you know, do you really, at the end of the day, it came down to, do you really want to have that conversation with that general contractor about, hey, yes, we're going to be in business, cash flow is good. And then they look at your financials and see that you took out a loan for software. That doesn't look good. You don't even want to have that conversation in that type of a negotiation. You don't even want, you know, I mean, so in that perspective, that $50,000 savings, it's nothing. It's nothing. You don't even, you know, I, I, we're trying to get a multi-million dollar contract. We don't want anything that even sniffs of financial inappropriateness or instability. Makes sense. You know what I mean? Now, when I understand it from that perspective of the CFO, that makes sense. I'm not going to try for that three-year deal anymore. It doesn't make sense. You know, yeah, but it, on it the even, surface, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's like, well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. I, and this is what I love about being able to interview different people from different industries. Cause you're like the first one from the construction world. Right. And so, you know, I've done a lot of design build projects and we've JV'd um, joint ventured with a lot of different um, contractors as the prime. And so there is a, you know, I've been blessed of being put in those situations, like four major projects, um, ma major pursuits. And it's, you know, for us from a design firm, working side by side with a contractor, it, it's a different, it's a different, it's a different beast. The lens at which you guys look at things versus what we as a design firm, like you said, right? Oh, well, why wouldn't you want to save $50,000? $50, but in the grand scheme of things, that's pennies compared to, you know, the risk, the liability or losing a multi-million dollar project. Right. And so, but it's just interesting the, that, you know, that lens that, you know, we all get to work with. And, you know, hopefully this shares insight to anybody listening of that, you know, sometimes <laughs> don't just take no, the first one, maybe dig deeper. Like for you, it probably took you what a handful yeah. of meetings to finally, for that to finally kick in. It more probably should have been a meeting, you know, it ended up a meeting, but it was, it was more emails and, and several iterations and several, you know, every answer that came back. Okay. I can, I can address that. And finally we get, it's like, I'm on your side now. I get it. That makes sense. Now, if you're engineering only firm or architecture firm, that, that, that whole dynamic is probably different, but from a construction yeah. or a contractor perspective where we've got millions of dollars worth of material and labor 
that we have to cash outlay maybe before we start seeing that revenue come back. Uh, that's, you know, cash flow is a big concern. And, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. It's just something I didn't really ever appreciate. And I, again, that was, that was just recent. I've been frustrated for that for almost 30 years. And now I get it in this industry. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned this before, so I'm curious if this will be your answer for the next one. Uh, what would you consider to be your CAD BIM your CAD BIM manager superpower? Uh, I've got a few of them. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty good about taking the same tools everyone has and using differently. A good, you know, former colleague in in Las Vegas said, "You know, you're good at the things other people are bad at." <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm worried the corollary is true as well, that I'm bad at the things other people are good at. Okay. But I think at the, at the end of the day, the, the thing that I'm really good at is winning over tough users. Um, you know, when I just got into construction, I flew to the East Coast to met, meet with the shop manager. And the first words out of his mouth, you F and IT guys are all the same. More crap is broke when you leave than when you show up, leave my SHIT yeah. alone. I'm not an IT guy. <laughs> but that was his perception of me. Within a week, I could do anything because he knew I, I knew what his plasma table did. You know, the, the IT guys see that thing cutting with the plasma arc and, well, that's lightning bolts. That's, that's, that's scary. And yeah. he knew that at the end of the day, I, I knew how to make that machine run. I've run CNC machines. Um, and I just, you know, I've run into people like that, people that are typically, you know, classified as an a-hole. So I, I kind of, you know, I kind of think of myself as maybe a BIM proctologist. <laughs> People that are classified as an a-hole are rarely a-holes. They're passionate about something, but they don't feel like they're being heard. They're frustrated about something. And if you can listen to them and understand, I like those people. I like that grumpy old guy that nobody likes because, you know, he's going to give me some insight that nobody else will. He's not going to drink the Kool-Aid. I'm going to hear it raw like it really is. And I'm, you know, um, and that's, where, that's what's going to be, you know, to the heart of my problems. I remember one shop manager at a company I worked at, everyone hated him. And he had, he had an odd sense of humor, so he could come across gruff and you wouldn't really know that he was joking sometimes. But at the end of the day, he, want, it was, he was a very simple guy to deal with. Am I responsible? Yes or no. If I am, show me what I need to do. If I'm not, who is? You know, That simple. If you could address that, he was the greatest guy in the world, but he was used to people that, you know, I'd get a call from him and it's like, okay, so IT was out here, but are they done? Did they give up? Uh, am I supposed to do something? He didn't know. And it's like, you should understand. I mean, I, I, I like those people that typically get marginalized uh, and, and thought of complainers because there's something that they care about that's not happening or something they see that nobody else is seeing. That's, I think, where some of the true, in, we can all get in a room and pat ourselves on the back about how great things are. Um, but, I, you know, I guess I, I framed it up once to uh, the HR guy didn't like it, but I said, I'm not the half full glass kind of guy. I'm the half empty glass kind of guy. I'm not bitter about it, but I want to know where the hell it went so I can fill it up. Yeah. And so you can't, you got to focus on the problems if you want to solve them. And that's, I think that's my superpower. I can, you know, I tend to win over users like that pretty easily. Nice. Yeah, that's a really good one. And I, I try to do the same as well, because I think, um, I think there's some insights with that, right? I mean, again, if you, if you can win over those people, I mean, you can win over anybody, but I think you'll also get some, I like to say some insider advantage, right? Because once they know, like you said, I think they're misunderstood, 
once they know somebody cares, man, yeah. they're they're they'll they they're like the pit bull, right? I mean, they will protect you. They'll have your back when push comes to shove. And if you need a little bit of grace, I think they'll 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 be willing to give it to you in those moments versus other people who they don't may not they may not think they care. Yeah, that was I think that lesson I, I learned that from a uh, the president of a company I worked at. He had a theology degree of all things, you know, and he and he framed it up this way: You're driving down the road and you see a car broke down on the side. What's the chances you help them? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Depends on who you are or how busy you are. It's your best friend. You gonna stop and help them? He want he 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 talked about fostering relationships. He said sooner or later you're gonna screw up or something's gonna go bad. The guy that can actually get you out of that might be the guy that you just destroyed his day. Do you want him to be your friend or not? And so, like I said, if, if you can win over those people and show that you care, and some of that too is just get off, get off the damn email, get off, get off the instant messaging. It, if you can walk over and talk to him, do it. You, you, you'll find out that oh yeah, they're a, they're a hockey fan or they like to go boating, and, and you build that personal relationship. And now, yeah, I know this problem's taking longer to solve than you'd like, but it, it's hard to get mad at your friend. It's easy to get mad at a stranger. Yeah. Wow, that's 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 some good insight. Yeah, I mean, I, again, that, that was a huge bomb there. So thank you. I think I think our the listeners will get a. Hopefully, they can take that, run with it, and use it. Well, um, it, it's interesting. I I did see that in real life. A uh, company I worked at, they used to have a cornhole tournament, um, just to foster you know relationships at work, and you couldn't be partnered with anyone in your group. And this one de- plumbing detailer hated his project manager. They despised each other. They got paired up. They were friends ever since that and worked together better after yeah. that. Yeah. You know, it, it's powerful. Yeah, sometimes we just got to, like you said, um, get 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 in front of the screen, right? And go talk yeah. to somebody and, you know, just show, again, just show. I think that's, I think, to be honest, I think that's kind of one of those things. And we talked about this with others. Um, other interviews where, um, you know, sometimes we're introverted, just kind of not sure why from this in, in this industry, we just, every, you know, and there's nothing wrong with just wanting to be behind your computer and working, right? Nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, though, um, those who are able to get out from behind the screen, and I, I know right now it's tough because of all the restrictions and a lot yeah. of people are working remotely, but even before this is just going out and just saying hi can, can go a long ways of, just building that rapport because you never know when you're going to need somebody to go a bat for you. Yeah. Maybe. If I'd go to a fab shop, I would, you know, I'd go out, hang out back with the guy while he had a cigarette, you know, yeah. even if you don't smoke, you, that's when you learn what really happens versus what everyone says happens. <laughs> you know, the, the guard is down in that, in that type of environment. So. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what, what is a current technology or trend that you are the most excited about? I think just the industrialized construction, just because it, uh, coming from manufacturing, I, I, I've seen people at BIM conferences, oh, where's this all going? It's like, you know, BIM, that's PLM, product lifecycle management, lean, you know, uh, you know, prefabrication modularization, that's the design for manufacturing, you know, uh, the same thing that we've done for off, you know, to, you know, onshore things that were, you know, outsourced overseas in the manufacturing industry, just seeing those two worlds come back together, because managing between those two worlds, my whole career has been a challenge. So it's nice to see that look at things. I, I think there's some misconceptions about how that's going to happen. Um, you know, but uh, it's interesting to see. I, I, 
I almost wish I was a little bit younger in my career because I'd like to see how this plays out a little bit more. And I, I, I think it's going to take longer than I've got left. Uh, it's going to take a while. Yeah, it, it is exciting. All of these, you know, again, um, just how fast technology is advancing. And, you know, it makes it, it's exciting, you know, it's exciting because obviously you get a lot of different stuff to potentially, I like to leverage technology to create differentiators or two things. One, to make us more efficient and effective in-house, but then also create a differentiator for us and what we can provide our clients. Yeah. Right. Um, but the same time, in the same time, though, it's a challenge because our clients are now, are becoming more sophisticated, expecting more. So, you know, there's an, I, I just think there's a lot of opportunity to kind of, again, um, don't got to be bleeding edge, but you can be cutting edge. And, you know, be, I like yeah. to be at a point where, you know, something new comes up. Um, you know, I like our clients to, we're the first ones they bring to the table for those, hey, we're thinking about this. What do you guys think? You know, because we're a trusted partner, um, you know, but yeah, it makes it an exciting time though, for sure. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the future of CAD and BIM? Well, you know, I don't, you know, people always talk about them like they're different things, you know. 3D parametric modeling is still CAD. Same thing, you know, in, in the, the construction space. Just because it's 3D and parametric doesn't mean it's not CAD. But I guess the, uh, you know, so the, the thought that even like 2D will be around, is going to go away and be obsolete, I, I don't think that's accurate. Napkin sketches and pencils are still around. You know, there's, they, they play an important part. Um, you know, they're just used differently and at different times now. So I think like two, in a, from a 2D perspective, I mean, I've seen BIM done with, you know, 2D, you know, back, uh, you know, in the, the 90s. Um, it was all about the data. You know, in terms of BIM, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, iterative design and generative design and those types of concepts. And we're going to speed up the process. I don't think it's going to be design led. I think it's going to be, it's going to be more manufacturer and contractor led. Um, you know, we always complain that, you know, the architect, you know, architecture is not constructible and architects get bent out of shape. But you know what, they, I, I don't know what a healing environment looks like. I don't not, they're, they've got a different concern than I do. And so that comes to our engineers and our engineers complain about architects. And, you know, but you know what, our construction guys are complaining about our engineers and then our yeah. shop and our field guys are complaining. We all have different perspective and that's just kind of the way it's <laughs> supposed to be. But I, I think in terms of like uh, where things are going, I think you're gonna see more contractors and manufacturing the reason design and architecture isn't constructible is because you have to design it all. If I had products that you could choose from, you know, how, how did you know if you're going to lay out an office space, an interior designer, did you design the wall system and the chair, you know, from Steelcase and Hayworth? No, they had products, and you designed around those products. I think that's kind of going to be how it's going to be. Design will be using more products. Um, which then will make things more constructible. But just, you know, to throw a bunch of garbage into a, a you know, iterative design process and hope it's magically constructible on the way out, I, I don't think it's going to happen quite, you know, quite like that. So you mentioned just if you could, I, I would like to know kind of just if you could expand upon, you know, maybe construction led. Because um, again, for us, for being an engineering design firm, right? Again, I think the lens of the of, of a construction company is just fascinating. And whenever I can work with people like that, I try to, you know, learn more because I think again, because one thing, one thing that I know, especially as 
production plans, right? What one thing I definitely don't want is I like to have my plans that's clean, organized, readable, right? Because last thing I want is the contractor to curse cursing my name when he's flipping through the plans, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, or get a reputation of oh, this firm does really does really you know bad detailing, right? But I guess um, you know. But end of the day, though, I mean, there it seems like a lot. There's a lot of innovation on the construction side as well. Is there? Any, do you have any other thoughts about you know when you say you know some of this future of CAD and BIM might be construction led? Do you have any more maybe thoughts there to that? I'm just curious. Well, I'm thinking more like manufacturing led. You know, I mean, we're going to have you know the reason your stuff isn't constructible is we haven't told you. I mean, I remember, you know, I've, I've worked for design build firms and I remember we had a plumbing engineer sit with a, a you know, general foreman level plumbing detailer and they sat all day going through red lines on one project and the plumbing engineer's like, you know, nobody in 20 years has explained any of this to me. And just getting those two groups together, you know, having each one, you know, the engineer will never be a constructability guy. The construction guy will never be an engineer, but the more they can learn about each other, you know, and the fact is that, in the, the subcontractor space, I don't think we've done a good job explaining to people where our value, you know, what the value is. Hey, you know what, uh, you know, we don't care about this. We do care about this. You know, these are things to watch for. These things will help us. Um, we haven't done a good job communicating that. We don't even have a catalog that we design around when we're design build firm typically in this industry. So, you know, why should we redesign from scratch a bank of wall carriers in a, in a restroom every time? You know, that should be a proticized somehow, you know, uh, yeah. metric with some options. And now you just install that, you know, back to my manufacturing days in the, in the granted industry. Um, you know, the, the company I worked for was, uh, I think they're about 130 years old now, fourth generation family there. You know, they did Jimi Hendrix's private family mausoleum, Dale Earnhardt seniors. I mean, they did anywhere stone in the United States, they've done it, but they're expensive. They could do things nobody else can do. So they only got, I forgot, maybe 20% of their quotes, but they were around long enough that they were spec'd. And if they were spec'd, they closed about 80% of those jobs. Same thing as a contractor. If I have a catalog and I give my product catalog to you to design around, I'm going to be more efficient at manufacturing and it's going to be constructible and it's going to shorten your design cycle. I think, I think we need to kind of, kind of head that direction um, a little bit. And I think that would help the process better than just assuming, well, we're going to give a bunch of AI and ML to you and your stuff is just going to magically come out better without input from, yeah. from the guy that's actually building it, the products or assembling them. All right, well, thank you. Does that explain you. it? Yeah, it does help, help. It helps at least broaden my, you know, my thoughts about that and stuff. Like that. But I, I, I mean, it's no different than, right. I mean, like when we're designing roads and bridges, I mean, there's a, there's a manufacturer for, you know, the girders and, you know, some of the other structural components that we use, you know, it's, you're not saying that you're going to design a, I guess you can design a bridge from a catalog, but if you, where you can productize those elements, I think we have done a good job of that for the most part, but obviously there's things to be, you know, to enhance and to move forward and to make better just so that way, you know, I think high quality is predictable, but when you do that, you have to be, got to kind of have that game plan or those things in place right to help minimize the human error or minimize you know any kind of potential rework um you know that may occur yeah you're still designing the the you know the the bridge but there's different systems you could use is it you know steel girders is it you know concrete just yeah. you know um 
but in the construction space, you know, you know, engineers develop their own content for things that we're going to throw away and redesign it so that we can build it. And that, that, that is just such a wasteful process. And you don't see contractors sharing their content with the engineering firms they're working with. Uh, yeah, even well, we in design build firms, you don't see that even happen internally a lot. You know, we're, yeah, because that was busy. a part of, you know, that was a part of design build when we were joint venture, the contractor, whatever we designed, they, they had engineering staff that would basically constructability and value engineered what we did anyway. And so yeah. it's like, it just seemed odd to me that, you know, they would do that. And then eventually again, it's, and I, I don't like the quote. I don't, I think there's a scapegoat of, well, the contractors are going to do it their way anyway. Right. I hear that all the time, whether or not it's houses or it's big bridges and roads. I think there's something to that. So why, like you said, why is it there a more alignment with that? So that way, if I'm going to design, if I'm working with you, you know, Acme construction company, right. Um, why, why won't you let me know a little bit more of that insider of your approach? So that way, instead of you, you know, bad mouthing or whatever, or complaining about the stuff that I'm giving you, why don't you, you know, why can't we partner better? I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a collaboration. I, you know, the, an over, an owner of a different MEP firm that I used to work for, he used to say that when back when, back before he was running the company and he was running work, he said, you know, I, you know, you partner me with the right engineer and I can guarantee I can, I can take 10% of the, out of their cost of their project without even looking at it. Just, you know, with constructability and, you know, getting those two teams together, yeah. similar, even in that granite industry, I can think of a project uh, in lower Michigan that, you know, the architect did things intentionally to save costs that were actually driving up costs. And it was actually getting on the phone, having a conversation. Well, this is how this product actually gets made. You know, this is what's going to reduce shipping costs or fabrication. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We just specified it the other way because we thought that would be cheaper, but they didn't know. And it was really just having that conversation. Yeah. Kind of kind of interesting once you uh, listen and communicate and talk things out, how, uh, you know, you can, you can do some amazing things. <laughs> Where can the CAD Manager Confessions audience follow you in your journey? Oh, gosh, I hate to think of it as a journey as much as a train wreck. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I'm on LinkedIn, usually posting some snarky comment because I get bent out of shape when I hear how inefficient construction is, you know, by software companies because, you know, that just means they've sold me things for 20 years that didn't help. Uh, but I also have a, a website, you know, that, um, you know, that it, it it's more for niche people using Autodesk Fabrication in the, in the HVAC and plumbing and piping space for the Autodesk Fabrication software. I, the site's more for my own knowledge, so just so I can... I've got an access re to my own resources from work uh, about what I've learned and figured out in the past. But, um, you know, that's out there. I, my guess is LinkedIn is the best place or just, you know, email me. I, I'm always looking to network with people. You know, there's something you can learn from everybody. I really like following other industries because there's things that cross over, you know, healthcare is looking at what Toyota's done with lean. You know what I mean? There's, there's so much crossover that we tend to overlook. So um, email me or LinkedIn is probably the best place. All right. Fair enough. Um, any parting advice or thoughts to the CAD BIM management community? Yeah, I've, I've got three depending on your plate. You know, if you're new, uh, younger in your career network, I, I, I mean, I got to say that the networking is lower quality and harder now with more social media. Things were more intimate and personal back in the day. So it's, 
you know, don't be afraid to do that LinkedIn connection request, but don't just send it blindly, you know, send a note. Don't be afraid to email somebody, talk to somebody new at a conference. You know, you, you know, if you're looking for a job for very long, you know, you probably haven't networked very well. If you have a good, strong network, you know, when I changed jobs, I just rattled a few cages, you know, hey, do you know anybody? And the jobs came out of the woodwork. A lot of things to look at. You know, if you're old, uh, here's my parting thoughts for, for, you know, if you're older in the career like me, uh, learn something for somebody younger. Uh, Giselle Howe, who you've had on your, on your podcast, uh, she probably doesn't know it, but she's a mentor of mine, just unofficially. You know, now I, I, I've taught, I've got to, you know, I made a point of getting to know her uh, when I saw her at Autodesk University one year, but I see this young person, you know, showing up on social media. And who the heck is she? You know, <laughs> what I've learned is, you know, I have a site now because of her. I, you know, I've learned to get out of my bubble and view that, hey, just because I post something on LinkedIn, it's not self-promotion. It's just marketing myself. That's also, you know, helping others share what I know. Um, you know, I learned some of that stuff from her because I was just this old guy that thought if you posted stuff that, you know, you're, you're just probably self-promoting. And it, it's, it's not that at all. I, lear- I actually learned that from her. So I've, I've broken out of my shell from somebody young, but there's always something to learn from younger people if you're, a, if you're an old, old timer like me. Uh, and then for, you know, for everybody, I, I think just understand how things work. You know, don't just look for the answers. Find out why, how things work underneath the, the hood. Um, you know, that's where you really gain your knowledge. You know, just having an, anybody can get an answer. That's what Google's for. There's not a lot of people that understand how things work. And that's really where the, uh, I think the, uh, the wisdom and experience comes from. It's being able to solve a new problem you've never encountered by looking at similarities of other problems you've solved before. And just getting Google answers doesn't help you with that. You have to understand how things work. There now, amazing. Uh, appreciate those parting thoughts there. Um, again, thank you for being a part of this BIM Management Masterclass Series. I appreciate you taking the time and getting to know you better. Um, again, thank you. All right. Thank you, Eric. Great being here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you found the things we talked about today valuable, I would be honored if you would subscribe and or leave a review. Until next time, continue to challenge the status quo. Be the leader you wish you had. Don't be afraid to step into your greatness and good luck in your pursuit for the perfect set of plans.